0: morning. As, as Dan said, we did make it. Um, and I promise you at the very beginning that some of you are going to be like, this is way too short, and some of you are going to be like, this is way too long. And I was correct. Um, we've made it through the last book of the Bible, um, the Apocalypse of Jesus, or the Revelation of Jesus as it's uh, worded in our uh, Bibles, but it's literally the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That is the title of the book that we've been looking at. Uh, and Apocalypse means what? Unveiling, Uh, and so as we've talked about every single week, uh, often when we hear the word apocalypse, it means something catastrophic. It means something destructive. It means something that we don't want to experience. Uh, But that's a huge assumption because apocalypse just means unveiling. And so when everything is unveiled and we can see what is true for what it really is, when we can see what is happening even behind what our eyes can see, we find out that the apocalypse, the unveiling, is actually good news. Uh, and I hope that you have seen that as we've gone through the book, that it's not a book uh, to be afraid of. It's not a book that we ought to ignore. In fact, the book has something really important to say to us today as we live in a way to fall, that where we want to follow Jesus, declare that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and figure out what that means in our day. Uh, This book has something really important uh, to say to us, a number of things that are really important to say to us. Uh, And to understand the book correctly, as we've done from the very beginning, it's important that we read the book in its context because the book was not written to us. It was written down for us. Yes, we get to read it and learn about it and gain wisdom from it 2,000 years later, but it was not written to us. It was written to the first century church, seven churches in particular, in the beginning of the book of Revelation. John is writing this letter to these churches to encourage them to follow the way of Jesus. Uh, Even when it looks like Jesus is losing, it's not actually true. And so John wants them to know that Jesus is actually winning. Uh, John himself is on a prison on the island of Patmos, and he's there because he's convinced that Jesus is king. King of kings, Lord of lords, and Caesar is not. He would not bow his knee to worship Caesar or to the cultural agenda of Rome. And because of that, he paid the price of being exiled to the island of Patmos. And so he's encouraging the churches, no matter what the consequences, it's worth it. It's worth it to follow Jesus. Don't just look around in the meaty world around you at the tornado and the chaos and the havoc that's happening. But there's a greater reality than what you're experiencing and what you're seeing uh, is there anything more important for us in our day coming out of the last few years for us to be reminded of that no matter what the chaos is, is going on in our world, there is more going on than that we, uh, than we can see with our eyes. So the purpose of Revelation is to set the present moment that we're in in light of the unseen realities of the future. To set the present moment that we're in in light of the unseen realities of the future. It's also meant to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. And this is probably the most major theme in the book of Revelation is to look and to open your eyes and see that we are, the hope that we have is not just something one day down the road. It's something that already exists. We are not waiting for Jesus to take the throne and be in control. He's on the throne today. And yes, he's working things out through the course of history, but don't lose heart because that is reality, that is truth, and you should bank your life on it. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Now, there's a saying that maybe many of you have heard that uh, where somebody says, I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Has anybody heard that saying before? Nice uh, Christian, uh, you know, slogan saying. Um, It sounds nice, but it's just not true. I mean, it's true that we know the one that holds the future, but it's not true that we can't know the future. The book of Revelation gives us a picture of the future. And many of us were living in either three dimensions or three tenses the past tense, the present tense, or the future tense. And depending on who you are and your story, maybe you find that you, one of those places takes more. Um, Takes, a, takes greater authority in your mind, you're focusing on your past, or maybe you're most concerned about the present, or maybe you're daydreaming about the future. Most of us are living in one of those three tenses in some kind of way. The book of Revelation is actually inviting us not just to focus on the present, what is true, but as we get to the end of the book, it's important that we look into the future. That we don't get caught up in just the present, we don't just get caught up in the past, but we look to the future because I believe that what we believe about the future impacts how we live today. If we look down the road, it affects the experiences that we have today. Um, I have been somebody who's not always aware of the present. Um, I can remember being a bit of a daydreamer uh, back in the day. I can remember in high school, I used to always, my mind was thinking about things. I wasn't always paying attention in class or to what my parents said. I remember there was one time I was coming home from my friend's house and I had my Walkman on. I don't know if you guys know what a Walkman is, but they used to have like cassette tapes and you put them in like the, you know, uh, the cassette player and you put on the the headphones before there was beats and, and, you know, all that stuff. And you put the headphones on. I remember coming down the road, uh, listening to, I'm sure it was probably Collective Soul or Pearl Jam. uh, And I was playing air guitar on my... While I was riding my bike. So my hands were free. I mean, uh, you know, I didn't ride my hands. I didn't ride my bike with my hands because I was cool. Uh, And so I'm playing air guitar, jamming out the collective soul. And then all of a sudden, bam, I hit the back of a parked car on the side of the road and hit my face on the trunk, I ended up uh, on the top of the trunk of the car, and I was crying, and my, my face was bleeding. I remember there being blood just pouring down my face, and I was crying all the way home. Um, that's kind of a picture of how I've spent my life, just daydreaming and not paying attention to the present, and things hit me. Um, but there's a principle in life that, and the principle in Revelation is that we need to open our eyes and look down the road, because it actually impacts how we're going to live in the present. If we can look down the road, it's the first thing they teach in driver's training, right? Look down the road. It'll, it'll allow you to see what's coming, the obstacles that are coming, allow you to keep straight. This is where the book of Revelation brings us to in the end. Is like, if you look down the road, you will not lose course. Even when there's obstacles and things that come up in your life, you won't lose your orientation. You will know what is coming, and you can live your life accordingly. And so we look at the bookends of the Bible, the beginning and the end of the Bible, This should anchor us because the Bible tells us an origin story, who we are, where we came from. But it also tells us the story of who we are and where we're going. And the biblical vision of the future is not just about the end of creation. I hope that we recognize that now as we get to the end of the book of Revelation. It's not about the end of creation. It's about the beginning of a creation. It's the beginning of a new creation. The story that has creation as its first word has creation as its last word. Revelation 1 and 2, and Reve- or Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are the bookends of the story of Scripture. If we get those two things right, we will understand most of what's in the Scripture well. We'll understand our role in God's story well if we understand the beginning and the end, the bookends of how the story starts and how the story ends. What we see at the beginning of the story, what we see at the end of the story is a picture of Shalom. Shalom, which is a word we talk about a lot here, but shalom is a Hebrew word uh, which we translate as peace, but it's more than peace. It's, th- it's life the way it was meant to be. It's all things living in harmony with one another, We see this in the Garden of Eden, that God is living in unity with Adam and Eve, with humanity, that humanity is secure in their identity and who God made them. Adam and Eve have an understanding of their role in creation, is to take care of the world, to be God's representative, be his image bearers in the world. This is the harmonious picture we see in the beginning of the biblical story, the picture of Shalom. And then Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20 We can see that the story goes sideways, and we get a picture of God's shalom project. As the story goes sideways, as man decides to go his own way, to be independent of God, to be his own God, God is in the process, in the journey of reconciling all things to himself, to healing, to reconciling, to to restoring relationships. And when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we can see that at the end, God's shalom project comes back together, and all things are made new. And so this is, we read in, this is what we read in Revelation 21. This is what John sees. As he looks towards the future, what does he see? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth has disappeared. And the one si- sitting on the throne, this is verse 5, the one sitting on the fro- throne said, Look, I am making everything new. There's two Greek words that could be used for the word new. And every time the word new is used here in Revelation 21, it's the same word. And so the two options are naos or kainos. Everybody say naos. Everybody say kainos. So naos, the word for new, naos means it, was, it wasn't there before. This is a brand new thing. It has just arisen. It's just appeared. It had no former uh, version of it. Uh, it is a brand new creation. That's what the word naos means. Kainos means what is new and distinctive, what has been remade or renewed. When we say, you know, that person's a new person. We're not saying they're actually a new person. We're saying they've been transformed, and the way they used to be is different than the way they are now. This is the word kainos. So, let me ask you: Which word do you think it's talking about in Revelation 21 when it says "new"? Naos or kainos? Who thinks naos? Who thinks kainos? Well, oh, people have been paying attention to the series. Kainos. It's kainos. God says, "I'm making all things new." He's not saying I'm getting rid of the old and I'm doing something brand new. He's saying I'm remaking, I'm recreating, I'm reconciling, I'm restoring, I'm healing the thing that previously was to make it all that I meant it to be. God does not say, as I've wrongly read the words through most of my life, I am making all new things. That's not what he says. God does not say I am making all new things. God says, I am making all things new new. I'm making all things new. We see this foreshadowed in his own resurrection. Jesus, who came and had a physical body, God with skin on, died and was resurrected, and he came back to life in a new body, but a new body that resembled and reflected his old body, as we saw that he had scars and people were able to recognize him, but it was a new transformed version of Jesus. And if you read the New Testament carefully, you will recognize that what happened to Jesus happens to us at the end of time, that we too are resurrected, that we too are remade, renewed. We don't go as some spiritual entity to live in the clouds somewhere eating Philadelphia cream cheese. That is not the picture of heaven that we see. We are remade, newer versions of ourselves, And if we read the Bible even more carefully, we recognize that what happened to Jesus doesn't just happen to us, but it actually happens to the whole world. God does not say, I'm making all new things. He says, I am making all things new, restoring them, healing them transforming them making them to the version of them that i intended for them to be in the beginning and so to try and grasp most fully the picture of the new heavens and the new earth that we see in revelation 21 and 22 the book end of the bible there's so much going on in those two chapters but uh, to try and simplify i just want to focus on two things paying attention to what isn't there anymore and paying attention to what is there and so let's begin with looking at what is not there what is not there In Revelation 21 and 22 that we see previous. Well, we should, uh, this is from chapter 19 and 20, but it's worth repeating that the dragon is not there. In the new heavens and new new earth, the dragon is not there. The dragon who is the deceiver, the accuser, the serpent, the Satan. And we've read about throughout the Revelation text. The arch enemy of God is not there. He is not there to bring destruction and death. He is not there to deceive and speak lies to God's people. We also see that the beast of the sea, which is the dragon manipulated political powers, people yielding uh, power and influence for selfish gain and evil purposes, that is not there either. Those have been thrown. Into the lake of fire, along with the dragon. What is not there is also the beast of the earth, which represents the dragon manipulated religious power, the propaganda machine that was intended to breathe life into the agenda of the dragon and the sea beast. This manipulative religious spirit that is trying to draw people away from God is not there in the new heavens and the new earth. We also see that there's no sea in the new heavens and the new earth. How many of you guys are looking forward to spending some time at the lake this summer? And you read the end of Revelation, you're like, oh great, I've got to spend eternity not having summer vacation. That's not actually what it's talking about. Uh, but we read in Revelation 21, right at the beginning, that the sea is gone. It doesn't exist. There's no sea. And as we should know by now, this is a symbol. Uh, and how, are we, how should we ought to read this? Well, throughout the book of Revelation and throughout the biblical story, the sea is seen as a place where the unknown and evil and chaos reside. This is like the mystery of evil in, for the Old Testament people was in the sea. And in the, new sea, in the New Testament, you see that Jesus has these miracles where he calms the sea, where he has authority over the sea. It's not just that he has authority over the earth, which we know, but we see in those miracles that Jesus has authority over evil and chaos. So in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no chaos there's no evil. The things that are happening in this world that you are wondering, why is this happening? What's behind this? Why is there destructive forces and chaos? And why does everything seem like it's spinning out of control? There's no sea in the new heavens and the new earth, which means that all of that chaos, the source of destruction, is gone and eliminated. We also see in verse 4, it says, He will wipe Every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. In this faith community alone, over the last couple of years, we have lost some dear, dear friends. We, lost, we celebrated the life of one this past weekend. Loved ones that feel like they've left us too soon. Over the last couple of years, we have collectively lost husbands, wives, Moms and dads, parents. And we've journeyed through those things and it's difficult and we feel the sorrow. We feel the the grief. We feel the loss when we lose these family members, these loved ones, these friends. And for many of them, we feel like they left us too soon. It doesn't seem right. We internalize maybe things where we say to ourselves, it shouldn't be this way. And Revelation 21 and 22 shows us that Jesus says yes and amen to that. When we say it shouldn't be this way, God says, yes, exactly. It ought not to be this way. I'm making all things new. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. I'm going to remake the world. I'm going to reconcile and I'm going to heal. There won't be death. There won't be sorrow. We won't be shedding a tear for loved ones that have gone on. Every time we have a longing for things to be different than they are, we hear a yes and amen from the God of revelation. He says, hold on. What you're experiencing, what you're seeing is just temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And let me show you what is unseen. And this is the picture of the future. Now live in light of that future picture today, which means, yes, we, we grieve and we feel loss in this moment, but we know that it's not the whole story. And so we can live with a sense of hope. In the midst of loss and pain and sorrow, we live with a sense of hope for the future because we know that God is in the process of making all things new. We also see in the new heavens and the new earth that there's no temple. There's no temple in the city, it says in verse 22, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The presence of God has been mediated throughout history in some form, which is what the temple represents And we see that there's no temple in the city. We're going to talk about that more in a second. Now let's talk about what is there. We look at Revelation 21 and 22. What do we see that is a part of the new heavens and new earth? Well, first of all, we see a city. It's the first thing, the first image that we see in Revelation 21 that the, the city is coming down. And cities is a theme throughout the book of Revelation, and it's not a positive thing. The first, it is here, but it's not previous to this. The first readers of Revelation lived in cities, in Ephesus and Smyrna and Laodicea. We talked about the cities in the beginning. They could see that their cities were under the spell and influence of the great city Babylon, which is what was referred to in Revelation to refer to Rome. But throughout Scripture, Babylon has been used to refer to any uh, civilization that has rejected God at the center. We see in the Bible, after, the, after Cain kills his brother Abel, he runs off and he hides from God in a city. The place uh, of the city is the place that he went to to run away from God. We see humanity seeks to live independently of God in Genesis 11 when they build the Tower of Babel, when they make that city. In Revelation, we see that Babylon, again, is the embodiment of rebellion and immorality of moving God out of the center of our lives. But then we see this image of the heavenly city. And it says that the heavenly city is coming down out of heaven. It says this twice coming down out of heaven. These words are super important and should be very humbling to us because the city of the future is not one that we create. The city of the future is not a result of some evolutionary urge or technological advancements of humanity getting to such a point that we can create heaven on earth. That is not what we see at the the end of the book of Revelation. The city of the future, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, is just that. It comes out of heaven. It is God's gift. We humans did not form the first creation, and we humans do not form the end picture of creation So the city is a gift from God. It's something that we wait for God to come and do. Yet the irony and the paradox of this picture, this new city, is that cities throughout the Bible and history have been the result of what humans have created. And we have this paradox in the book of Revelation at the end where God brings a city, this garden city. It's kind of this marriage of Eden and the marriage of the new Jerusalem coming together at the end. We see this paradox, which tells me that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is work to do. There is things to build. There is creative endeavors for us to venture into. Again, we will not be sitting in the clouds just eating cream cheese. There is actually something for us to do. There's a life to be lived. The hustle and bustle of the city. We we actually see this in the end picture of Revelation. Let's take a look at what it says about the city. It says, So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with twelve gates guarded by twelve angels. The name of the twelve tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city. Its gates and its walls, when he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel." Now, this translation, uh, which is what the one we've been using for most of the series, is a little faulty. Uh, why is it faulty? Well, it's taking uh, measurements in the first century and trying to translate them for us to be what they would literally be in our measurements now. Well, not literally be for us, I mean literally be for Americans, uh, I mean, even Americans, they got to tell us what the measurements were in the Bible. They're using the imperial system, empirical system for measurement. Uh, But that's actually not what the Bible says. If you go back to what it literally says, it says this. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be, what does it say? 12,000 stadia, whatever that is in length. And as wide and high as it is long, the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was, what is it, 144 cubits thick. Have we heard these numbers before? Yes. Are they symbols or statistics? Symbols. We are catching on. Uh, converting the measurement into miles, some translation convert to miles, some translation convert it to yards. It doesn't matter whether it's stadia, miles, or kilometers. They ought to just keep the twelve thousand because that is the point of the measurement. It's not a, the point isn't a literal measurement. The point is symbolic. In this whole text, we see twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The city has twelve gates, which are named for the twelve tribes of Israel. The city has 12 foundation stones that have the 12 apostles' names on them. The 12,000 stadia, or whatever it is, is 12,000 for the number of completeness and fullness and bigness. 12 times 10 is a big city. 12 times 10 times 10 is a really big city. 12 times 10 times 10 times 10 is a really, really, really big city. It's beyond the point of measurement. It is big enough for all of the people of God To gather in and be a part of—that's the point of the symbolism around the measurements of the city. And then we see 144. The city has a wall. Some translations convert it to 216 feet or 17 yards. Again, misses the point. 144 cubits is clearly a symbol—12 times 12. This is just the right measurement for the people of God, which have been represented throughout the Book of Revelation by the number 144, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles the people of the Old Testament, the people of the New Testament, the historic people of God and their cosmic bigness represented in the city of God. And then we have 12 gates. And And these gates, we have three on each side of the city, pointing north, south, east, west, four sides. And we, we, we talked about the, the, the symbolism around the, uh, the number four. This is global. This is cosmic. It's an invitation. The gates in all four directions, an invitation to the whole world to come and participate and live in the city of God. Now stay with me. There's more. We see when we look at the measurement of the city, It's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. We also recognize that there's no temple in the city. Why is there no temple in the city? When we talked about earlier, well, the reason there's no temple in the city is because the whole city is the temple because God's presence doesn't need to be mediated by some religious system anymore. God's dwelling place is fully, fully among his people. And we have this cube. The city is a cube literally coming out of heaven, And the symbolism of this would not be lost on the first century readers because where do we see a cube in the Old Testament? Well, there was a cube, a perfect cube in the middle of the temple called the Holy of Holies where they thought and they understood that God's presence dwelt most uniquely and powerfully and densely in that space called the Holy of Holies. It was so dense that people dared not go into it out of fear that they would die in the presence of God. One time a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they would tie a rope around his foot just in case he did fall over and die and they could drag him back out. Uh, this is the sacred holy place where God's presence was so uniquely manifested in that cube that was different than the, the rest of creation. So now we see the Holy of Holies, the city, this 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000 cube coming out of heaven the new he- becoming the new heavens, the new earth, telling us that God's presence, which has been mediated through us, through all of history, is now completely accessible to us. Now that we can know God as we are known by God. God made fully available to us. And then we see what else is there? God's dwelling places among the people, and the people... Dwell with him. And the actual word is not just people, but plural peoples. They will be my peoples. God himself will be with them and be their God. They will be his peoples. This is literally what it is saying. So it's not just it's not just some uniform people, it's peoples. It's all God's peoples, which represents the ethnicity in the world, the ethnic diversity we see among every tribe, tongue, and nation, which we've seen foreshadows us throughout the book of Revelation, and throughout the Bible itself, that God is bringing together a peoples. And when the peoples of the earth come together, they don't give up their distinctions. They don't automatically give up their ethnicities and all become some uh, unified ethnicity. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is part of the people's of God. And so we recognize in the New Jerusalem, in the New Heavens, the New Earth, this cube that is coming down, there is no racism, there's no prejudices. In the New Jerusalem, there is beauty, there is diversity among God's people, but we are all unified. And this is something that our world is talking a lot about right now, and rightfully so. But please notice that the world longs for this kingdom to come, but they don't long for the king. And that's the problem. The world is asking for the elimination of racism. They're asking for the kingdom of God without God. The longing for unity in the human heart is found in the united response to peoples worshiping the king. And for the whole world collectively to submit to the king and to worship the king. This is the invitation of the book of Revelation. That is when we experience the beauty of what we're longing for, the diversity, the inclusion that we all want, this world that doesn't have any prejudices or racism, a part of it, but we honor the way that God has made us. This happens as we collectively, as peoples, choose to submit our lives to the King. We also see in the new heavens and the new earth, What's described, uh, let me just read the text. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. No longer will there be any curse. The river of life flows through the city. The river of life, uh, the word for life, it's the Greek word zoe, Um, and so it's the river of zoe life, which represents full life, eternal life, life that does not decay. Again, there's two words for life, zoe and bios. It's not saying the river of bios, the river of existence. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the river of true life, the, the, the river of the purpose that we were meant to live with. If anybody has ever thought, I want to thrive, not just survive, this is the picture of the river of life that we see. It's the river, it's the life and the water of life that Jesus was talking about when he when he is at the meeting with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and uh, he and he tells her that i have water for you that if you drink it you will never thirst again We've been brought back again to God's original plan for creation, the river of life, the river of Zoe flowing down the middle of the street, flowing from the throne of God, flowing with the life of God, inviting people to drink of it and never thirst again, to live the full life they were created to live. And then we see the tree of life, again, the tree of Zoe. The tree of life which has been blocked since the Adam and Eve. And we know that this is a reference to the Eden story where we had two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of the good and evil representing the choice for Adam and Eve to live a life independent of God, to live their life their own way. And they chose to eat that tree, and it had devastating consequences on their life and on history. And so the tree of life was blocked off in the Eden story. And this was an act of grace from God. In God's mercy, he blocked the way to the other tree, the tree of life, Because God did not want us to experience the horror of living independently from God forever. Now in the new city, when God has made all things new, we are invited to eat forever from the tree of life in our transformed state. For we no longer live independently of God. We see that the tree of life bears crops in every single season. There is no season where Zoe life is not. It says that the leaves of the tree are for the healings of the nations. Again, nations, literally the word that we get ethnicity from. For the peoples. We haven't just sinned against one another. We have whole people groups, whole nations, whole countries that have sinned against each other. Not only are individuals made new in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. We see that peoples Nations and countries and ethnic groups are healed and made new. What a beautiful picture. And there's more things that are in in the text that we don't have time to get into. But the one thing I do want to end on is that there's a face there. The face of God is there. It says in 22 verse 4 that they shall see his face. The people will see his face and in Exodus 33, Moses wanted to see God's glory and God said, you cannot see my face for no human can see my face and live. And so as we've said, there's been some mediation between man and God throughout history. There's no more temple. There's no more mediation. The face of God is there for us to see his beauty and his glory and to not be afraid And I believe that this is the longing, the deepest longing of every human heart, whether they know it or not, is to be in the unmediated presence of God. And they shall see his face. And so we see at the end, as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, that this is a beautiful picture of the future, that it is good news The face of God, the fullness of God, we will know God fully as we are known by Him. We are united with Him. We are united with Him as individuals, but we're also united with Him as peoples, as nations. We're reconciled to one another, and we experience healing. We know who we are as sons and daughters of God who were created to worship God. All creation is redeemed. It has been groaning and waiting to be freed from His bondage, and we see that this happens at the end of the story. And the end of the story, the end of the book of Revelation, And consequently, the end of the whole book of the Bible ends with two invitations. It ends with two invitations. The first invitation is, come. The Spirit and the Bride, God and God's people, say, come. Let anyone who hears, say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of Zoe life, come. And maybe you are here this morning and you have never responded to the call to come to Jesus. We echo the words of Scripture and we invite you to come. To give your life to Jesus. To drink of the water of Jesus. To experience the Zoe life that he wants to bring now but ultimately bring in its fullness and consummation at the end of history. Be reconciled to God and to enjoy him forever. Come. It is for everybody. The invitation goes out to the world. Come. What is stopping you? We invite you, if you want to come, to come forward at the end of the service. We'd love to pray for you. That's the first invitation that the book of Revelation ends with and the Bible ends with. The second invitation that the Bible ends with is come but this invitation is not from God to us it's actually from us to God he was faithful witness to all these things say yes he says yes I am coming soon and the people of God say amen come Lord Jesus this is how the Bible ends and if I'm honest let me be honest for half of my life I couldn't pray that prayer For half of my life I didn't want Jesus to come back. My naive understanding was that the return of Jesus was an apocalypse of bad news for the whole world. And probably for me. It meant an apocalypse of destruction. And for sure, the apocalypse is God removing evil from the world and anybody who is bent. On worshiping the dragon, following the way of the dragon, and we say yes and amen to that. But how wrong I was that the apocalypse was bad news for me in the world. When I look at the apocalypse of Jesus, it's not an apocalypse of bad news, it's an apocalypse of good news. And after we see the apocalypse for what it is, after we recognize the unveiling and what John, what John sees and helps us to see, how can we not join in with God's people throughout history and say, Come, Lord Jesus, come? Come soon. We're waiting. We're waiting for the day where you make all things new. And until that day, we will live with our eyes set on the future because we know the story we are in right now is not the end of the story. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It was my prayer as we end the Good News Apocalypse that, uh, first of all, I wouldn't be afraid of the book of Revelation, uh, but also that our imaginations have been redeemed, that we would be able to look at the future and have this uh, biblical perspective, this hopeful perspective, this faith filled perspective that no matter what we're walking through, God is writing the story that we're a part of and we can trust Him completely. And we know that this is good news for us and for the world. And so we're invited to participate with God in the Shalom Project of inviting people to be a part of the story of God, where he will make all things new. And we can collectively then take this posture of praying and hoping and saying, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this revelation, for this apocalypse. We thank you that you are the God of good news you are not the God who looks at bad news and turns an eye, but you say, I see the destruction, I see the evil, I see the sin, I see the pain, I see the loss. And you do something about it. And you are doing something about it. And so, Lord, we choose, again, to worship you, to put you in the center of our lives to commit to follow you faithfully, no matter what might be happening in our world. Because we know and we believe that it is worth it, that it will be worth it. And so we lift up our disappointments, our fears, our hurts, our losses, our griefs, our misplaced expectations. Lord, we bring them all to you. And we thank you that in the end, you will make all things new. Lord, for anyone in this room that has not responded to your invitation to come, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be heard, that they would hear that invitation to come home because our true home is in the new Jerusalem in the new heavens, the new earth, which you are preparing for us. So we want to respond to that. We want to say yes to that. In Jesus' name, we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, if you'd like prayer for anything, uh, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next week.